know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. I want to remind our listeners that this is a very rapidly evolving topic, and so anything we discuss here may have changed by the time you listen to this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Robert Pearl. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, and former president of the Mid-Atlantic Medical Group. In these roles, he led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West and East Coasts. Named one of modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders, Dr. Pearl is an advocate for the power of integrated, prepaid, technologically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. Dr. Pearl serves as Clinical Professor of Plastic Surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and is on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses on strategy and leadership and lectures on information technology and healthcare policy. Dr. Pearl is the author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong a Washington Post bestseller that offers a roadmap for transforming American healthcare. All proceeds from this book go to Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Pearl hosts the popular podcast Fixing Healthcare, publishes a newsletter with over 10,000 subscribers called Monthly Musings on American Healthcare, and is a regular contributor to Forbes. He has been featured on CBS This Morning, CNBC, NPR, and in Time, USA Today, and Bloomberg News. Dr. Pearl publishes more than 100 articles in medical journals and contributed to numerous books. A frequent keynote speaker at healthcare and medical technology conferences, Dr. Pearl has addressed the Commonwealth Club, the World Healthcare Congress, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's National Quality Forum. Board certified in plastic and reconstructive surgery, Dr. Pearl received his medical degree from the Yale University School of Medicine, followed by a residency in plastic and reconstructive surgery at Stanford University. Robbie, thank you for joining me on the podcast. That's quite an introduction. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? Good morning, Ted. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I applaud your focus on the COVID-19. It's certainly on the minds of people. The only thing I tell listeners is if they want any more information, I have a website, which is robertpearlmd.com. And on that, I post ongoing material, particularly, as you say, in this rapid evolution of the coronavirus pandemic around the globe. Great, Robbie. I'm excited to hear what you're going to have to say about this COVID-19 pandemic. And I think your perspective as a physician leader, a healthcare executive, big picture thinker, add a unique perspective to this conversation. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to get right into some of the questions I have for you. Sounds great, Ted. Let's go ahead. All right, Robbie. So let's start with the basics and make sure we're really all on the same page and talking the same language. Can you tell us what is COVID-19, how is it spread, and how is it different than other viruses that we see like influenza? So COVID-19 is a coronavirus. They get their names by the spikes that come out of the virus. 
You may remember as a child drawing the sun by putting a little circle with lots of lines coming out. Those lines are the corona. It's also the spikes on the king and queen's crowns. And it's those spikes that allow this virus to penetrate through the cells, particularly in the nasopharynx and the oropharynx, and then ultimately, for many, in the lung itself. There are seven known coronaviruses that impact humans. Four of them are the common cold. Two of them were pretty famous, MERS and SARS. And COVID-19 is the seventh. It's a different family of viruses than the flu, which is the influenza virus. And there's over 100 different viruses in that particular category. And we're only learning the variation between COVID-19 and the common influenza viruses that we see. One big difference is that none of us have ever experienced the what's called the RNA, similar to the DNA, but a single strand that the COVID-19 carries. And it does not appear to be any cross-reactivity to the other coronaviruses like the common cold. So if you look at influenza, what happens is that every year we see a slightly different strain, but previous years we've had an experience with a similar kind of virus. Didn't have the exact DNA, but it had enough similarities that our body responds very quickly through the memory cells. In the COVID-19 situation, that does not happen. So the disease itself, is more problematic and more lethal. The second big, big difference is that we don't have a vaccine. So we do have a vaccine, although about half of people don't avail themselves of it when it comes to the flu. They all should, but they don't. But here we don't have a vaccine. And a vaccine is the most efficient and for many viruses, the only way to prevent becoming very sick. And that's the big challenge with COVID-19. We don't know all the things we need to know. We've never seen that RNA before. So we have to mount up a response that takes longer. And there's no vaccine, which is the most effective way to control the epidemic, in this case, a pandemic. That's a great description, Robbie. Uh, we're all working on, or hopefully working on hand hygiene and social distancing to try to help prevent the spread of this virus. Can you tell us about containment efforts so far and where we are, particularly thinking about cities like New York that are experiencing a real surge with this virus? In terms of transmission, the most common way that it is passed, well, it only goes from human to human. We don't have any evidence of it coming from animals. And the most common way that it's passed is going to be through droplets of virus contained in and around droplets of liquid that we expel when we cough and sneeze, sometimes when we speak to individuals, particularly when we're very close to them. So the idea of social distancing is how do we separate people, whether it's not going to someone else's house, not seeing colleagues at work, and making sure when we walk by people, we have enough distance so that if they sneeze or cough, the virus does not come into our face and penetrate through our cells. The second way that it can be passed is through 
through touching an object that the person who has been infected touches. So they touch their nose or their mouth. They then touch a doorknob and you touch the doorknob, you touch your nose or mouth. And the consequence is that you take that virus that can't live for very long. We're still trying to figure out exactly how long that time period is, but it's long enough so that the individual touched it, left the room, you touch it, take it to your face. Now that virus comes into your nose, into your mouth, and the spikes penetrate into your cells. And now your own body becomes a powerful manufacturing plant for that virus. And several days later, usually about five, they'll erupt out of your cells, travel through your body, infect you, and give you the disease itself. Those are the reasons why social isolating and hand hygiene are so important. When you look at the control of a virus, we said the only way to truly address it is through the vaccine. That vaccine is a year away. The second way is by containment. Containment is what should have happened. Containment is what we see in Hong Kong and Singapore today. What containment means is you find the people who have the disease at the earliest time period. Now, why is that so important? Because you have to find not only those people, but their contacts. And then you have to take all these people, test them to figure out who actually has the disease and quarantine those with it. You put a corral around those individuals. You may remember, Ted, back when the measles popped up in Disneyland in California. And that's exactly what they did. They found the people who had it, the ones that they had come in direct contact with, and made sure that those individuals did not interact with anyone else. That is what we should have done. We knew this virus was coming January 1st. We should have started to prepare, created the testing kits necessary, created the personal protection device for healthcare workers. So when the first case came to the United States, now we're already in the end of January, I think it was January 26th. We had three weeks to do that. We could have found all of the people coming into the United States, bringing that virus with them. We missed that opportunity. And it was not for six more weeks that we started to recognize how many testing kits we needed. On March the 12th, the United States had done a total of 7,000 tests. South Korea, by the way, did over 10,000 every single day. And by that time, the numbers were massive. As you say, New York has become totally overwhelmed. If we wanted to do this type of containment, it would be almost impossible because the number of people who have it and the number of interactions, therefore, because every person would deal with five or 10 or 20 people every single day, the numbers are so astronomical. We're past that point. All we can try to do is to minimize how many people develop COVID-19 at any given time. This is what a lot of people are talking about, this notion of flatten the curve. What that's really saying is that without a vaccine and without effective containment, this disease is going to spread. Only thing we can control is how fast. Left to its own, the virus appears to double about every two and a half to three days. That is a massive exponential increase. It's why every day you're reading more people People died today than any day before. That process we know is going to continue and continue for at least a month because we're now seeing the people who got the virus a month ago, became sick three weeks ago, needed hospitalization two weeks ago, went to the ICU a week ago and died today. That process we know is going to go forward. It's always amazing to me when I see this notion that somehow we're going to diminish the 
deaths or diminish the number of people with the disease. We're dealing with what happened weeks ago. We can do that looking forward. I don't know exactly when this podcast is going to post, and so maybe it will change. The good news that I heard today or read today was that we're finally seeing a slight elongation of this transmission in New York that has now been doing social distancing so that rather than happening every two and a half to three days, it looks like maybe we pushed it out to four days. We get it to six days or 10 days. What we'll see over time is actually going to be the same number of cases. It's just that we won't see that spike. And why is that spike so important? Because we don't have enough hospital beds, respirators, doctors, nurses to take care of the number of people who will get sick if that all happens over a six or eight week time period. We need to stretch it out to four or six or even eight months. I appreciate you describing how we missed the opportunity and the public health effects um, of that missed opportunity. I'd love to dive into a couple of the topics that you touched on as you were talking about that. One is vaccine development. You mentioned that we're about a year away, give or take. Um, but what is what do you know about the status of vaccine development for COVID-19? Well, the good part is that the Chinese actually, way back in January, had done the analysis of the entire genetic structure, the RNA of this particular virus. So we know specifically what it is. But a virus process of being created requires that you uh, develop a antibody to that particular uh, genetic uh, material. Then having done that, you've got to show that it actually is effective at slowing down the virus. And you've got to show that it's safe. you got to do clinical trials. That's why it takes a year. It's not that we're not going to have some early vaccines that potentially could work, but until we prove that they're safe, that they're not going to cross-react with another part of our body, that they're not going to create more problems than they solve, we're not going to be able to distribute that. Um, my understanding is there are laboratories that have what might be a potential virus, but that it can't be, um, but it won't be released obviously until all the testing and approval by the FDA happens. I don't know if you remember a movie called Contagion. Uh, it was a a big hit a few years ago. Uh, listeners who want to actually see a lot of things about the current COVID-19, it's right in the movie about the transmissibility and the increase in numbers. The one place that that movie is totally wrong is that in the end, it's a vaccine that's developed over the matter of a couple of weeks. That's just simply not scientifically or medically possible. Maybe it will happen in eight months or six months, but right now we're thinking, could it happen in weeks? No, it can't happen in weeks. It can't happen in a couple of months. So whether it's six months, eight months, 12 months, or even 18 months, we can't tell at this point until the vaccine trials happen. And we demonstrate both its efficacy and its safety. One of the other things you mentioned earlier, Robbie, is testing and how we've been pretty slow to roll out widespread testing, unlike other countries. So can you tell us what is the issue around testing more widely for COVID-19 and why we're so far behind countries such as South Korea, who implemented very large-scale testing and monitoring of people? This will be looked at in great detail in the future. Today, we can't be 100% sure the answers to your questions. What we know is that early on, the CDC in Atlanta, the Center for Disease Control, asserted its authority to be the sole place of testing development. And then several problems happened. The first problem was the initial tests they developed were not particularly effective, that the results they were able 
able to find were in um, were, were uncertain and sometimes inaccurate. So we had a delay in the development of the test. Now that's not impossible. These tests are not as easy as you might think, particularly in the early stages when we don't know enough about it. And to be inconclusive was the outcome of that. Some people believe it may have been from reagent, as they say. Well, no, in the future we don't yet know today. The second part of the problem was that the CDC limited the ability of others to develop the test, specifically universities and private institutions. Had that not been in place, we would have seen a plethora of tests being developed and we would have had broad availability. The experience in Washington State is a really good example where they had the potential to develop the test and distribute the test and they were prohibited from doing so. Now, in the defense of the CDC, I want to point out that there are problems. If everyone in every lab is developing a test, you don't have any consistency and you might have tests that either overstate or understate the disease and you have very much flawed data. And so the idea of having a single source has a logic behind it. In this particular case, though, with a pandemic where speed is crucial, I think in retrospect, it was a major mistake uh, to happen, particularly given how cumbersome it is for California or Washington State to obtain the specimens, transport them to Atlanta, get the tests run and get the results back. That's a five-day process. By that time, an individual infected has now infected a bunch of other people and that virus has now expanded rapidly. It's a race to get containment when the numbers are manageable by the public health people that sit in place. And the third part I think is political, which is that for a variety of reasons, once again, that we don't understand, people downplayed the risk of this virus, despite the fact that scientists had predicted this exact phenomenon for a long time period. And by the time there was broad acceptance of the need to do this very aggressive, extensive testing. So so many weeks had passed by that once again, the opportunity had been missed. Now people are starting to talk about how can we get home testing in place so that we again can find these infected individuals, and they're all of us. You may have heard yesterday that uh, Prince Charles in England is now infected. We certainly have a lot of celebrities in the United States. You want to know immediately so that you can self-quarantine, self isolate because if you never leave your house and no one comes into your house, you can't transmit that virus. And two weeks later, you will have hopefully recovered and now be able to go back into the public arena. Yes. As you say, Robbie, there have been a lot of missteps along the way in our response to this. And I think once this is behind us, there are going to be a lot of opportunities to look back and learn from the process and hopefully address for the future the way we respond to crises like this. You know, a lot of the countries in Asia, uh, like South Korea's doing widespread testing, they had all dealt with SARS back in 2003, had that experience on their home front, and had an action plan in place, which is why they were able to respond so consistently. And even taking the, you know, the political things that you mentioned, um, certainly factor in, but they, um, they were really ready to respond more so than we were. 
But Germany is a country that didn't see some of those viruses to any more degree than the United States did. And yet we see that level of testing and control and their mortality is dramatically less than we're seeing in the United States today. I don't think we get a pass on this one. I think we knew that it was coming. Uh, all you have to also look at the protective devices for the caregivers. It's amazing to me that we are running out of the masks that are necessary, the gowns, the gloves. These are relatively inexpensive items that could have been stockpiled, that could have been created and built in January, knowing that the epidemic was likely to, to occur. I mean, the total cost for a hospital would probably be less than it spends caring for its hospitalized ICU patients on a given day. And then we would have everything in place. We were in major denial, Ted, as a nation about what was going to be happening. We had the data from other pandemics. We had the data out of Wuhan. We could see what was going to be coming. And what bothers me is that the preparation would have been relatively inexpensive, certainly compared to the $2.2 trillion passed by Congress yesterday and more stimulus package without any doubt needing to be developed over the next several weeks as the economy continu continues to sputter and more and more people find themselves unemployed. Yes, it's actually quite shocking when you think about it in those terms, our, our utter lack of preparedness and, and um, failure to act as early as we should have. And the failure to make the, I'll call them small investments compared to the big dollars that ultimately we're going to have to spend. We will have wasted dollars. We will have lost lives unnecessarily. We will put caregivers in compromised positions. And all of this is unacceptable and could have been avoided had we acted in a timely fashion in a very aggressive way to contain the virus at the first sign that of what was happening in the United States. Absolutely. Now, the next question I want to ask you, Robbie, is one I get from family members and friends quite a bit. What are the current thoughts about COVID-19 being a seasonal virus or a continuous virus that we're going to continue to see into the summer and beyond? We don't know. That's the best honest answer. Uh, what we know for listeners is that the flu, as an example, has a temperature-related incidence. So what you see is that in Australia, whose summer is six months ahead of us, already now we know what's going to happen to the flu in the United States come the you know the following winter. Once we see what's going on in in their winter, I'd say which is our summer. So in June, July, and August, they get the disease. Then it's our summer, it's not here. Then our weather starts to cool, theirs warms up, their incidence drops, ours rises up, and the virus seems to follow a certain uh, amount of temperature, of heat necessary to, uh, to spread it. We don't exactly understand the phenomenon. In the COVID-19 situation, we don't know. Uh, there's some evidence that's possibly it is a little bit less contagious in warmer weather. We thought that because we see slightly lower incidence in the states of the United States along the South. And as you probably know, right now, Louisiana is seeing increase in incidents faster than any nation in the world. Most people right now, unfortunately, believe that there will not be a temperature-related decline come the summer. I hope we're wrong. I hope we're going to see it. There's just no way to know until the weather actually uh, changes. So that's that, that's the, um, the concern around that. People also want to know about the mutation of the virus. It's looking as though it's pretty stable 
stable, which is going to be good for vaccine developers. You don't want to develop an effective vaccine against the virus. And then by the time you release it, you find that the virus itself is moderately different. So, so that, that's the positive side. It's also likely to increase the immunity. Another question people often uh, w- want to talk about. But we don't yet fully know that. And to go to your question about whether this is going to be continuous, there's no reason to believe that it won't be. The only way to truly eliminate, as we did with smallpox, is extensive, extensive vaccination. If not, you see pockets of the disease persisting across the summer, either in a different geography or in pockets in, within a particular nation. And And even though the numbers decline, when the following year comes, you once again see the spike. I think we're going to see an ongoing COVID uh, coronavirus uh, process the same way we've seen influenza. And I'm hoping, though, that we'll have a certain degree of immunity and a virus and a vaccine developed. And maybe out of all this, by the way, Ted, we'll develop a higher commitment to influenza vaccination where we have a vaccine that can protect people against this deadly disease. Remember, 50 thousand people die every year from the flu. 30 million people get infected, and yet we approach it as though we couldn't do anything about it. And the reality is there's a lot that we can do. My hope ultimately is that COVID-19 or some variant of it, coronavirus, will have a vaccine and it will become, over time, like the flu. Yes, and I will tell you, Robbie, anecdotally at least, um, people do seem to be a little bit more accepting of the idea of influenza vaccine in the setting of this. And really the messaging is protect yourself from influenza because you certainly don't want to, and same thing goes for pneumococcal vaccines. You don't want to be dealing with more than one illness at the same time and and having that hit to your your body. So I'm hopeful that in future years, um, we'll see more widespread influenza vaccination while we're also doing vaccination against COVID-19. I want to talk a little bit also about fear and and how that is affecting the situation. We see some people who are incredibly fearful and perhaps overreacting or even being a bit irrational. We see that with the toilet paper hoarding that's going on. Other people who are taking a pretty casual attitude to this and, and not taking the social distancing seriously enough. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on how fear is affecting our response to this pandemic. As you know, I wrote an article for Forbes about 10 days ago called The Seven Dangerous Myths About COVID-19. And I talk about this inside that article. The fear factor is real in any pandemic. The denial is real in most infectious problems that have this exponential curve to it. Early on, people haven't seen anyone, even with the disease, certainly not hospitalized, certainly not dying. As that reality happens. It doesn't happen slowly. It happens very fast. The lily pond has become the new metaphor. If you have a lily pond, these little green plants with the flowers sitting on top, and each plant doubles every day, and it takes 50 days for that lily pond to be fully covered. Day 44, only one or two percent of the pond is covered. You look out, you say, it's not a big problem. Eight days later, it's going to be totally covered. In fact, half the pond is still not covered one day before. That's what happens 
happens. 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, you look out of that lily pond, not much going on. And then all of a sudden, once you realize what's going on, you panic. And that's what I think where we are in this particular process. Some people are looking at the lily pond and saying, it's not going to be a big problem. Some people are looking at the same lily pond and saying, we're about to have a crisis. And once they see that crisis, having done nothing, they now panic. You say buying the toilet paper, hoarding the food, uh, doing whatever it's going to take to now recover. You want to make an analogy to the stock market. You know, the people who thought nothing was going to happen and now they're selling everything. This panic response, it's just how a human being responds when they see a crisis that they should have seen before and now it's going on. So you have relatively young people who are continuing to party, a third of college students, haven't changed their behavior at all. As soon as someone of their friends gets sick, you're going to see a complete, complete change to the opposite side. I think what's needed is a level of rationality. And the rationality is here are the facts. What we know is this virus has a spread every three days. If we don't socially distance, we're going to see the incidents go up at an exponential pace. If there's a thousand cases today, three days from now, there's 2,000. Three days later, there's 4,000, then 8,000, then 16,000. We're going to see it in the death numbers. A hundred people are dying now. And we don't do anything different. We're going to see 200, then 400, then 800. Ultimately, we're going to see tens of thousands of individuals dying from this disease, not because it changed at all, but because that's the nature of the exponential curve. And so that's what I would encourage people to be understanding. Science, science, science. science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. When you read the numbers, they are going to go up very, very fast. It's not that the problem's gotten worse and anyone is expecting they're going to come down. Doesn't understand the various nature of it. Panic is doesn't help us in any way. We know what to do. Social distance, hand washing, self-quarantine. These are the pieces that are going to make the process manageable. And at the same time, I think listeners have to understand that that approach does not lead to a rapid resolution. It means that that this process of flattening the curve extends the curve and people should be prepared for weeks and months of continuing to have to socially isolate hand wash and see friends and loved ones developing this disease and unfortunately i think what we're going to see is learning people who we care about dying as a consequence that's a great analogy of the lily pond um, robbie i appreciate hearing it in those those terms I want to touch a little bit more on influenza, which which you just mentioned. Um, influenza infects and kills many more people in the U.S. and globally than COVID has, at least thus far. Why are we so concerned about hospitals and the healthcare system being overwhelmed by patients with COVID nineteen? 
Only because we don't understand exponential viral spread. Because you're absolutely right. Today, the number of people is, are very, is much lower. Uh, but we know what is going to happen. As this exponential curve that Lily Pond continues to go up rapidly, we will exceed, we're already seeing it in New York, the capability of providing the care. The flu season stretches almost every hospital. Every hospital I, I've been associated with has the delayed elective surgery. They've had to move patients around. But because of its, I'll say, comparatively less lethality, the total number of people needing to be intubated is under the number of respirators and doctors and respiratory therapists and nurses that we have in the United States. When you look at the COVID numbers, what we, can, what we know is what will happen because of the transmissibility and the lack of any type of vaccination or effective intervention, we can predict what's going to happen. We've seen it in Italy. People are talking about putting two patients on a respirator at the time because the numbers tell us how high that spike's going to be if we can't slow down that transmissibility. So the reason people are, I'll say, failing to appreciate the greater risk from COVID-19 than influenza is they can't see that exponential growth. They're looking at their lily pond. They're saying, my gosh, only 1% of it's covered. Why are you panicking, Ted? And the answer is, you know, the mathematics and the biology, that six days from now, it's going to be completely covered. And they simply can't see that our minds don't work in an exponential way. We work either arithmetically or geometrically, but exponential growth is beyond our, our usual experience in anything in life. Great, Robbie. That's, I appreciate that, that perspective on that. Um, you recently wrote an article for Forbes titled Seven Dangerous Myths About the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. I'd like to take this opportunity talking with you to go through those seven myths you outlined and hear what you have to say about each. Um, the first is the coronavirus is comparable to seasonal influenza. I think you already touched on that, but anything else you want to add? I, I, well, we still don't know the exact transmissibility and the exact lethality of the COVID-19 virus. There's some data in different countries. There's some evidence right now that it seems to impact men more than women, seems to impact older people. Well, we know it impacts older people rather than younger people, or at least the lethality in individuals who have chronic, multiple chronic diseases or pulmonary diseases. But there's still a lot that we don't know about it. Um, what we can tell by the mortality numbers is what happens with transmissibility when we don't have any constraints sitting in play. And that's where we come down to this number of every two and a half to three days. And if you look at the mortality, unfortunately, Ted, it's exactly what you're seeing. I started a podcast two weeks ago. There were 70 to 80 deaths. A week later, when I had this, the subsequent one, there were 400 deaths. We're now above 1,000 deaths. Soon we're going to be up to over 2,000 and 4,000 and 8,000 deaths. And that tells us how easily it gets transmitted transmitted. The second part, though, is how dangerous is it? And we can't tell that without the testing kits. Why is that? Because we don't know the denominator. We know the number of people who die. What we don't know is how many people had it and got better and never told anyone. But the current thinking about it is that it's somewhere around half of 1% to maybe 1%. And remember, the flu is somewhere around a tenth of 1%. So it's probably somewhere between five and 10 times more lethal, which 
which again gets back to the point you made about dangers to our hospital. A disease of that nature requires a lot of hospital beds, a lot of respirators, a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses. And of course, the doctors and the nurses are also going to experience the COVID virus and be quarantined at home. We're seeing about 10% of law enforcement with the disease not being able to go to work. We're going to see the same numbers, at least when it comes to doctors and nurses, particularly if we don't have the protective gear, which they're entitled to and should have, but is simply not available yet in the numbers required. Right. And you mentioned the police and the nurses and the doctors, and you add in first responders and all of the other hospital staff, even that that starts to go exponential, as, as you had talked about. The second myth you covered in the article is that social distancing doesn't apply to young and healthy Americans. Tell us your thoughts on that. You may have seen on TV spring break with people partying across Florida. Uh, You certainly continue to hear about people in New York going to the local basketball courts and playing ball and without any question being able to share the virus should anyone uh, playing that day have the COVID-19. And some of that has been that younger individuals, particularly in their 20s and 30s, have seen themselves as being either relatively immune or unlikely to be significantly impacted. We're learning that's not true. Uh, so far, fortunately, by the way, no one under the age of 10 has had a uh, major COVID virus problem and died. By the way, in the flu itself, 160 children will have died this year as a consequence. So the, the only, I'll say, ray of hope in COVID is that it doesn't seem to affect the very, very young. But what we're seeing now is growing evidence that people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are being impacted. It's something like 20% of the people in the hospitals today are under the age of 44. And so the sense of invincibility is now facing reality. But the other part to it is that even if the individual were not to get particularly sick, they become a vector for distributing this virus. They go home, they see their family, maybe they interact with a grandparent with multiple diseases. This is how the virus spreads. In fact, it's very likely to spread amongst the relatively young because they're going to be the most mobile and least impacted and most unaware that they have the virus, both for personal reasons and to protect the rest of America. It's crucial that people at every age, social distance, hand washing, at the first sign of disease, quarantine themselves. Myth number three, Robbie, is that the problem will go away as soon as we have a vaccine. Problems we talked about is that the vaccine's not coming soon. If we had a vaccine today, we could manage this epidemic and pandemic because we could distribute it around the globe. I said my best guess is we're looking at a year, maybe a little bit less, but we have the next four to six months is when this exponential growth is going to impact our nation. And we will have people, and I want to stress this, Ted, People who will die from COVID-19, they will die because of the lethality of the disease. What people are very afraid of is how many people are going to die, not because their lives couldn't have been saved, but we did not have the medical capability of doing that. And they're going to be in two categories. You'll have people with COVID-19 who would potentially live on a respirator if they had a respirator and there's none available. People are looking at putting two people on the same respirator, something we never would have thought reasonable or possible. 
few weeks ago. But second of all, people with a heart attack who call 911 are going to have problems getting transportation to the hospital. When they arrive there, they're not going to be able to get the care they need. The physicians who might otherwise have taken care of the heart attack are in the ICU taking care of the patient on the respirator. Once you exceed your capability of providing that care, not only will people die from the disease, but people are going to die who otherwise would live. And we're going to see a much higher mortality than simply whatever the lethality of the virus itself is. We're going to see a lethality from an inability to provide medical care. It's already happening today in Italy. It's going to happen potentially in New York in the next couple of weeks. I hope not. We're doing everything that we can to avoid it. But if the exponential growth continues at the rate that the virus intrinsically has, it's not only a possibility, it's an inevitability. Yes. And I want to emphasize the the magnitude of that crisis where we're talking about two patients on a single ventilator. I've been in medicine for over 20 years. You have experience beyond mine. I don't ever remember that even being discussed in the past as something that we need to do in American healthcare. I, I don't know what your experience is, Robbie, if you've ever come across a situation where we've been talking about that situation before? I've never even heard people asking the question about who do we let die that we otherwise could save their life. A lot of end of life conversation about people who are going to die no matter what we do and how do we make that death as compassionate and appropriate as we can. But the idea that says we're going to have two patients, one of whom will live because we have a respirator, one of whom we will see die because we do not have the physical capability of doing what we are capable of to save their life. I haven't seen that. And as you know, you read the same New England journals, medicine as I do. Those articles are now popping up about who should live and who should die, not because of biology, but the limitations of the United States. We spend almost 20% of our GDP, our gross domestic product, the total value of everything we spend dollars on, on healthcare, and we don't have the supply the machines necessary to take care of this problem. And we didn't spend the dollars we easily could have to have avoided where we are today. It is a catastrophe and a tragedy and a major comment about the United States, both as a nation politically, but also as individuals around our mentality when it comes to healthcare. We don't do the things we could do in time, the preventive services, the management of chronic diseases. We like to believe in intervention, saving everything. And the coronavirus, COVID-19, five little strands of RNA is teaching us a hopefully valuable lesson. We'll see if we learn or whether we go back to our old way of acting. Yes, this really is unprecedented in, in all of our lifetimes. The fourth myth, I want we've actually touched on this a little bit in terms of our public health response and even comparing ourselves with what's going on in South Korea. Myth number four is that people don't need to be tested unless they're very sick. Well, here we're in a very interesting place, Ted, because people should be tested. A lot of people should be tested. And why should they be tested? So that we can quarantine and isolate. If you have this disease, you should not be going out in public. You go out in public, you're going to be spreading it, and people will be getting it at a high rate and therefore overwhelming our facilities, as we've talked about. The problem is we still don't have enough tests. We've been talking about this now. We could have done it two months ago. We've been talking about it for several 
several weeks and we still have major restrictions. I mean, hospitals are telling people don't get tested, not because they don't think they should get tested, but because they don't have enough tests and supplies to be able to test the people that they have to test in order to be able to provide the care to those who are at high risk of dying. Testing is what is going to be necessary because if we can find people who have the disease at the earliest time period. Now, one of the challenges, as you well know, is that there's some evidence that people are transmissible. Disease is transmissible in individuals who have no symptoms. When it came to SARS and MERS, we could do temperature measurement because people always had a fever before they became contagious. You may remember the airports that they used to do forehead scanning and pull anyone apart off of the line who had any elevation in fever. We know is that in COVID-19, people can transmit the disease before they have any symptoms, but certainly at the first sign. And what's the problem? The problem is the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 are exactly the same as the flu and very similar to the common cold. You get a cough, a little sore throat, a runny nose. You'd normally dismiss that. That can be the sign of having the disease. You are likely to be much sicker, of course, in a few days. But what we also know is that even people with mild disease, when they transmit it to someone else, it's just as likely to end up being severe disease. So this the uh, extent of symptoms that an individual has does not in any way predict what's going to happen when someone else receives it. Extensive testing. If we could test every person in the United States every single day, we could contain this virus. I don't see that day happening, unfortunately, very soon. No, nor do I. Um, myth number five, Robbie, we, we covered a bit at the beginning of this interview. Um, myth number five is with the right actions, the virus can be quickly contained. It could have been. When we had only one case with 20 contacts, there would have been 21 people. 10 cases with 20 contacts, we could have found 200 people. Uh, you know, 100 people, 20 contacts, could have found 2,000 people. Those numbers are doable. Uh, right now, as you know, uh, the numbers that are being reported, you know, 50,000 or 70,000, it doesn't matter. It's, it's five to 10 times greater. We're talking about in the United States today, probably a million people having this virus. Uh, we're talking about in the United States today, probably uh, 100,000 who will die. Those are the actual numbers that uh, sit uh, in place. Uh, and uh, the, the virus at this point really can't be contained until potentially, as you and I just mentioned, everyone was being tested every single day. And neither of us see that on the near horizon. And this next myth here, Robbie, we're seeing a lot of this in the news and even you know message groups from our own colleagues. And myth number six is that doctors and nurses are adequately protected from COVID-19. As you say, we know that they're not. The virus gets transmitted in two ways. It gets <clears throat> transmitted with through droplets and aerosol, big globs of, of moisture and little tiny sprays. The masks that we use as surgeons have air coming in from the side. They are probably somewhat effective against the droplets, but the aerosols come around uh, both uh, on the left and right side. The N95 mask is designed to have a full seal on the face. That's what care providers need to have because the in caring for an individual with COVID-19, we're looking at an aerosol type phenomenon and we need to isolate the breathing system of the caregiver from the patient. And that requires special protection. The gloves, we said it's trans transmitted uh, off of uh, surfaces, particularly metal surfaces. We know that people touch their face very frequently without even thinking about it, very reflexively. We need gloves that need 
need to be changed constantly. Gowns, the material stays in our clothes, we touch our clothes, we touch our face. So these are the kinds of protection that need to be sitting in play. One of the things that's interesting to me is there's now some conversation about whether patients who have this virus should be resuscitated in the way that you and I both know of pounding on the chest, of putting a tube into someone's mouth to breathe for them, the kinds of uh, CPR that's necessary. I can't ever think of a time when physicians were asking not whether to not resuscitate patients who decide that they don't want that, but to do that as a policy. It tells you how short we are in protecting the physicians if we had the supplies that we could have had, that we should have had. These kinds of conversations would not be happening today. We are in a situation where we are trying to catch up and the hill is getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And I think we're probably falling farther behind rather than closing the gap. The seventh myth that you cover, Robbie, is a really interesting one to kind of think about. And that is when scientists say, we don't know, it actually means things are worse than we thought. Explain that, what you mean there. In many ways, this is the one I've heard the most from readers about. Uh, when we say we don't know, the amygdala, the part of our brain called the fear center, lights up and tells us they're hiding something, much worse than we think. We don't know whether this is a seasonal virus or not. We don't know whether it's going to get better or worse in the heat. We don't fully know whether this virus is going to mutate. We don't know how long we're going to have immunity to it. And what that means is we don't don't know. Not worse, it's not better. Now, if there's someone who's hiding information that they actually do know, but they don't want to tell us, that's a very different problem. But you mentioned earlier about this notion of panic. And when we think that something is being hidden because someone tells us they don't know, that becomes a problem. And rather than taking a logical, rational solution, we do things that are foolish and put ourselves and others at risk. And we don't know means we don't know. What we do know is that more people will be diagnosed with COVID-19 by far than we think today, maybe 10 times more than we think today. And that number will double every three days if we don't do the precautions, social distancing, hand washing, and, uh, and self-isolation. What we do know is that the number of people who are going to die over the next two weeks is far more than any number of people who are dying today. That has nothing to do with anything we're doing today. It's what we didn't do a month ago. What we don't know is what's going to happen a month from now. We don't know it because it's going to be dependent upon how we act. And we don't know. I think for everything that could get worse than what we know, it could get better. We may find that we're more effective at social distancing and the spread rate goes down. We may find that we have enough respirators because we did the things that were needed. We may find that the virus mutates for less uh, virulence. This is what happened with SARS and MERS. We don't know. We may find that it gets better with the heat. We don't know means we don't know and no one should panic. But what we don't know, they should act on what we do know. Robbie, I want to ask this next question in the context of what we don't know. Um, and that is, how do we maintain the safety and well-being of our healthcare workforce if this pandemic does become a months-long battle, which it's it, at this point looking like 
it probably is. Well, again, Ted, I would say it's not if, it will be. In fact, not only will it be, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to flatten the curve and extend it. So people who are thinking this is going to be over in two weeks or four weeks, that we're going to see the numbers going down, we know they won't. This is not, we don't know. We, you know, we may not know exactly how high it's going to go. We know that it will not. This is going to be a multi-month situation, particularly for healthcare workers. What we know is that all the people who are sick, who are getting who are getting exposed today are going to be in the ICU a month from now when they're on the path towards uh, dying. And what we know is that the virus, as we slow down the spread, it doesn't make it disappear. It just means that the number of people having at any given time become less. So this is a long process for healthcare givers and for our nation. I think we have to protect our healthcare givers. And um, there's calls that I'm involved in every day, trying to understand what's going on in the hospitals across the United States. And most of them are taking a very uh, well thought through plan, keeping some of their providers, their physicians, their residents uh, at home so they don't get exposed. So when those who are there come down with the disease, they have other people who can come on in. And the challenge we're seeing in New York right now is you can't even do those things because the disease has now accelerated so rapidly that you need all hands on board. And now we might have a real problem if 10 or 20 or 30 percent of the workforce becomes sick at any given time. I hate to put it this way. We simply dropped the ball and we're now paying the price for it. In many of these areas, there's nothing we can do. If we don't have the protective equipment, more people are going to get sick. If more physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists become sick, we're not going to have the people in place to provide the care. If you can't build respirators fast enough, and these are very sophisticated machines, as you well know, that are dependent upon all of the calibrations and all of the uh, technical workings to save a human life, and you can't produce them fast enough, we may exceed that opportunity. We don't, all those things are likely to happen in given places. I think the biggest thing we can do is to try to collaborate and coordinate across all the entire United States. And we're not doing that today. There are literally hospitals still doing cosmetic surgery. Facilities an hour away are seeing patients who are transmitting disease to physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists who, if they had the same protective equipment that the ones getting cosmetic surgery are using, their lives could be saved. This is simply crazy. The way we do not have a national policy and approach. We could be manufacturing these pieces if we mobilized everyone in a true coordinated, mandatory way. We're not doing those things. This is going to be a big problem and it's going to impact our economy. It's going to impact our economy because the idea that somehow people are going to go back to school in two weeks, it's not going to happen. The next time children will be back in school is going to be September at the earliest. And that mentality people have not fully internalized and understood. This, let me back up and say, I usually dislike very much the war analogies in medicine. I think they're the wrong ones for doctors who should have compassion and empathy to be showing. But this is a war. This is a war against a virus that is not going to go away very quickly. And I only use the word war because World War One and World War II lasted four years. I don't think this will last that long, but our mentality of being able to understand that no matter what we do, we can't solve this in a short time period. I don't know whether our nation is prepared for that, Ted, for the economics of it, for the inconvenience of it, for the personal 
emotional impact of that. We are used to having a coronary artery vessel become obstructed, going to the hospital, having an unblocked, and being back on the presidential campaign two weeks later. That mentality that we have built into our thinking that the healthcare system can solve every problem has led us to not be vaccinated, has led us to not do the preventive services, have led us to not make the investments in chronic disease. All of the problems that you and I so know, know so well are coming to the fore here and they're coming to the fore in a war-type context. Let me add for listeners, though, I do think there's one, a couple of bright spots that I don't even want to really focus on because right now we're in the middle of war. But I think we're learning right now the power, as an example, of video. I personally believe and wrote mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care, we're usually wrong. 30% of what we do in the office, we could do electronically and virtually. In Kaiser Permanente in Northern California today, they're doing over 5,000 video visits every single day. Once this is over, patients are going to be demanding it. Doctors are going to be comfortable providing that uh, particular care. I'm hoping we're going to get a new emphasis on vaccines. And as you pointed out, the half of the United States that chooses not to get vaccinated will start getting vaccinated. I'm hoping that we're going to shift the mentality to having preparation because this is not going to be the last epidemic that we see. And how do we now stockpile and have available for the doctors and the nurses, nurse respiratory therapists, what they're going to need? How do we have a system instead of being fragmented becomes integrated? And how do we use modern technology in a way that we're not doing today? I think hopefully it'll be a wake up call. What's tragic about it is that we will lose human life or put providers in situations that they should not have to be in because we failed to learn this lesson when we had the opportunity in the past. We failed to intervene when we could have changed the course of the disease. Now all we can do is to manage it to the best that we can. And anyone who believes that will be easy, fast, and without patients suffering is missing the facts. I appreciate very much your educating the listeners that they are prepared, not only for what is happening right now, for what is going to happen. And I encourage them to keep listening to the show in order to be able to get the most up-to-date information. The one thing we know for certain is by a week from now, things will be very different than today. And they'll need to have a new update. I appreciate your chance to have me on the show and offer my thoughts on this particular pandemic. Robbie, I really appreciate your time and your expertise and and helping to teach the public. Uh, It's been very valuable. And perhaps down the road, once things have evolved a little bit, perhaps we can even have you back. It'd be my pleasure. Thank you very much, Ted. Thank you, Robbie. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.